You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello, and welcome to this episode of International Perspectives on Dry Eye Disease. I'm your host, Laura Perryman. In this series, clinicians from around the world are going to comment on some of the under-discussed aspects of dry eye disease that are sometimes glossed over. For our final episode in this mini-series, we'll examine the clinical journey of a patient with dry eye disease. This is the final episode of our first season in this mini-series. And if you like what you've heard in this episode, go back and listen to the first two episodes, which can be found earlier in your podcast feed. This episode is going to be a little bit different from our first two. In this episode, we'll listen to a previously recorded interview performed by our producer. After that, we'll take a quick break and allow two practicing clinicians to comment on what they heard from the patient. But first, let's introduce our wonderful panelists. Dr. Jose Gomez, who is professor of ophthalmology at the Federal University in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Dr. Gomez, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for the opportunity to be here uh, answering about dry eye. Excellent. And also I'd like to welcome Dr. James Wolfson, who is professor and head of optometry at Aston University in Birmingham, United Kingdom. Professor Wolfson, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Laura. My pleasure to join you today. We're going to hear from a patient who we'll call Jessica. We've changed her name for privacy purposes. Jessica spoke with our producer who clipped a few segments of her interview for us to listen and respond to. A little bit of background about Jessica. Jessica is in her 30s and she lives in central Washington state. She is highly myopic and wore contacts daily starting from her teenage years. And it worked well for about 15 years. But then she started experiencing some ocular discomfort. Her primary eye care provider asked her to take a break from contact lens wear, but she was still uncomfortable and getting worse. Let's hear from Jessica. So the first symptom that really started bugging me was the burning. I had a lot of burning in my eyes and it didn't, nothing really triggered it. The burning is what first kind of startled me per se. You know, I didn't know, you know, why they were hurting so bad, but then they started feeling so dry. And it's a, it's a feeling you can't really describe. Like you can say my eyes are dry, but this was dry. I mean, I was putting in artificial tears probably every 30 minutes and that included during the night. So when I started going through a box of artificial tears, I think there were 30 in the box. I'd finish those probably in two days. That's when I was like, okay, this is not working. This is getting worse. Her primary eye doctor told her to switch to a different over-the-counter artificial tear, which wasn't effective. During this time, Jessica started to experience severe photophobia, which scared her enough that she went to the ER. She was advised to follow up with her eye doctor, which she did. He recommended a steroid eye drop. And I thought, okay, great. The, stero- the steroid drop, this is what I need. This is going to fix it. It didn't. <laughs> I was on the steroid drop for about a week. And things were not getting any better. Still doing the tears. I wasn't sleeping. I was up all night putting in these artificial tears because nighttime seemed to be the worst, uh, the worst for my eyes. Um, I was going to bed probably about seven o'clock because I just couldn't keep them open. They were killing me. They hurt so bad. Um, You know, I I couldn't go to my son's like soccer games. I couldn't do anything. My life literally revolved around my eyeballs at that point. Um, and so I went back in and he thought, well, you know what, I, your eyes look okay, but I'm going to refer you to another specialist just to make sure we're not missing anything. 
So I thought, okay, okay, let's do that. I was worried about the wait time, you know, to get into the specialist, but luckily it was pretty quick. Let's talk about our approach to patients with these types of quick onset and severe symptoms. Sometimes by the time they reach our clinics, they're frustrated and have been unable to find relief. Well, Jessica certainly has a compelling story and I think it's moved each of us. Now let's talk a little bit about from an expert dry eye doctor perspective, what stood out in her history and do you see patients like this? Yeah, certainly for me, um, this is a, a very typical patient uh, story. Um, so that, uh, as you say, frustration that they've tried absolute their best to uh, get treatment for their eyes, that um, long journey, extreme discomfort, um, and the challenge of using artificial tears, which is the mainstay of dry eye therapy, but does not um, fully uh, answer a lot of cases. It does sound like she was compliant, and of course that's really important with artificial tears, four times a day for a month as a sort of minimum to really see whether they're going to work. But actually we need to then dig deeper um, as detectives if that's not um, helping her. I agree. Gomez, what stood out in her story for you? Well, uh, Laura, this is, as James mentioned, a very typical case. And uh, two facts uh, really caught my attention. First, uh, it's a 30 years old woman, and we know that the prevalence of dry eye is more common in women after 30s when start some uh, uh, changes in the hormones, especially in women. And the second point that caught my attention is that uh, the contact lens use. It looks like she started to feel discomfort when she started to use contact lens. And then uh, she started to use the lubricants and uh, didn't get better, uh, went to the steroids. So something also that was induced by the contact lens, or maybe she had dry eye and with the contact lens, it just changed the situation, the microenvironment of the ocular surface and she started to feel the problems. Uh, if it's related to contact lens, uh, one thing that needs to be done first is to reveal the contact lens feeding. The type of contact lens, and we know that uh, especially soft contact lens, uh, we have uh, better materials that can be more comfortable for uh, dry eye patients. But we also need to see if the contact lens is well fitted, if it's not too tight, and if there is a, a problem with the contact lens. Uh, the second point is that uh, as we see many cases of dry eye, the patient started to develop the disease and then it starts a chronic process of inflammation. And this is really makes the situation a little worse because then you need to, uh, to work not only with the lubrification, the lubrication, but also with the inflammation that many of these patients develop after the situation got, gets chronic. And what called my attention in this patient as well is that uh, she started using a steroid and that it didn't get better. So as James mentioned, we need to really investigate all aspects of her situation. 
the ocular surface, the leads. Uh, we need also to take a very deep look in the contact lens feeding to understand better and uh, to get a better uh, uh, approach for this patient. I wonder if you also run into patients who perhaps overdo it with artificial tears and create a, what I call a dishpan effect, where there's very little like actual natural nutrition laden protective lacrimal fluid on the surface. Do you run into this? Yeah, certainly not, and not just artificial tears. Quite often people start on the artificial tears and then start adding other things. Often they visit multiple professionals. Um, so by the time you see them, it, it's really difficult to, to differentiate what might be working, what might be irritating. Um, and also I think when you've got that many things to try and juggle compliance often um, gets mixed. And, and so it's really difficult to ascertain whether a, a particular treatment could work if it was done uh, in isolation or, or maybe with a combination of one or two other things, but properly compliant. And I'm curious what uh, your perspective is on, it sounds like no improvement on a topical steroid. Is that, does that tell you anything about the severity of what's going on, the, the comorbidities that are contributing to this very severe presentation? Yes, the fact that uh, the case did not improve with the steroids drop that makes us to get a little worried because uh, in many cases, when inflammation comes to dry eye, uh, it usually responds to steroids drops. Uh, but in this case, as uh, she didn't get an improvement with steroids, then you need to try to be more careful to review everything, what is she doing, uh, if it's sometimes patients do not tell you exactly everything that she's doing uh, or everything that she's using or the frequency that she's using. So you need to investigate to go back a little bit and to try to understand what is going on. The second thing that uh, might happen in a few patients uh, is that uh, in a few cases, of uh, dry eye, the patients, the patients evolve or uh, start to develop a neuropathic pain syndrome, which makes the diagnosis a little more tricky. And then this patient will not improve with uh, any type of uh, lubricant or steroid or anything. You need to uh, try other types of therapies and that needs to be also investigated. So uh, as James mentioned at the beginning and uh, I mentioned in the first answer, uh, we really need to go back and check all aspects of the eye examination and uh, try to really ask the good questions about the uh, habits of what this patient is really using if she's not using anything that could be toxic to the ocular surface. And we cannot uh, forget about the, the possibility of uh, the neuropathic pain that sometimes gets patients with a lot of symptoms despite of everything that she's trying. I agree, thank you for that. Uh, James, do you have uh, any other insights or things to add 
to this to these excellent presentation. Now, I think that's an excellent summary, but but particularly the the fact that she's not getting any benefit from the steroids, which is going to dampen down any sort of a, the um, inflammatory type effects, suggests that there's something else underlying here that really needs to be looked at. This is this is more complex than a a simple straight um, evaporative dry eye case. Um, and so we really do need to do that sort of subclassification uh, and then looking at the other features that can disrupt this very fragile tear film on the ocular surface. It's important as well, you know, considering the uh, some aspects of this patient, she's a woman uh, 30 years old. We never, we cannot forget that she's also in the group of Jogren syndrome. And uh, so uh, it's very important not only asking, but sometimes if she's not improving it, and if you if you detect that she has, uh, you know, uh, like a, a problem of deficiency of the aqueous component, you could never forget about uh, looking for Jogren's, either uh, asking some tests uh, or even asking some few key questions. Uh, for instance, how is the salivary flow? If she uh, has uh, uh, also feel uh, uh, dry mouth and uh, maybe uh, interact with a rheumatologist to ask some uh, specific tests or even a biopsy in case uh, the rheumatologist suspect of Jogren syndrome. So this is something that we need to keep in mind that is in a, a very important uh, uh, disease to investigate, especially in women uh, after the 30s. Well, I thank you so much for this great discussion so far. Let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll continue to hear from Jessica and learn how her workup continued and how she finally found relief. Welcome back to the show. We're joined by two international esteemed guests, Dr. Jose Gomez from Brazil and Dr. James Wolfson from the United Kingdom. Back to Jessica's story. She was referred to an ophthalmologist about 90 minutes away from her home. At first she tried the plugs, but they kept falling out. Driving back and forth to her doctor every few days for replacement plugs wasn't sustainable. The ophthalmologist decided to try a course of cyclosporin drops. Let's hear more from Jessica. And um, so I thought, great, you know, uh, he said, but it could take up to six months to work. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, like I need relief now, but I'm willing to try anything. So I, you know, filled the prescription, which by the way, eye drops, like prescription eye drops are expensive. It's insane the amount of money that these eye drops cost. But I was like, I will do anything at this point. So I started the eye drops and I, I didn't feel like I had much relief from that. I know that it, he had told me it would take about six months to work, but it could be sooner. I was hoping it would be sooner, but I probably, I would say a month and it just, I wasn't feeling better. And so I made another appointment and I drove back up there and I said, okay, like this, this isn't really helping. And at that point, you know, he said, you know, I, I've done all that I really know how to do. That ophthalmologist referred Jessica to a dry eye specialist even further away in Seattle. After her first telehealth appointment with this new specialist, Jessica went in for a consultation. She said that her doctor's compassion was a pleasant surprise, 
and that during her five-hour in-person appointment, she learned a lot about ocular anatomy. She's doing all this testing and she's telling me, you know, your eyes are so dry. You know, your eyes are, they're bone dry, you know? And I'm like, thank you. I know. And she's like, I, you know, I can, I can see it. I can see, you know, why you're in so much pain. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Like somebody sees it. Um, And from there, it really just started like my whole my whole routine changed. I left that appointment. I think I drove all the way home with my radio off because my mind was just like spinning of all the things that I had learned and all the things that I was going to be doing. But at that appointment, I, um, I actually got a session of IPL. Jessica is referring, of course, to intense pulsed light, which she continued to receive for several sessions. She also switched from cyclosporin to lefetagrast and received Botox to address newly diagnosed superior limbic keratitis. That specialist also performed a Sjogren's panel and determined that Jessica did indeed have Sjogren's syndrome, which meant some follow-up with a rheumatologist. And the specialist also suggested that Jessica might have sleep apnea. And I thought, well, I don't have sleep apnea. Like I sleep I mean, I don't sleep good, but I'm young. Why would I have sleep apnea? And she was like, let's get a sleep study done. So sure enough, I get a sleep study done. And what do you know? I have sleep apnea. (laughs) I think this opens us up for a useful discussion about how outside the box thinking might be needed for some of these dry patients we see who just aren't finding relief with conventional approaches. Well, I think with some of this uh, workup, we're starting to figure out why Jessica presents with such a severe case of dry eye. James, I'm curious, at what point during a patient history taking, review of past medical history, or during examination and workup, do you start becoming suspicious for systemic conditions, systemic comorbidities? So I think it is those patients that have had that long journey that have um, made a really good attempt at some of the basic treatments and those aren't working for them. And in Jessica's case, um, there are many of those that she's tried, and it seems that she's been very conscientious about those. Uh, another trigger for me is people traveling those big different distances. Um, so they've tried people locally and, and that hasn't worked for them. Um, and I'm often very embarrassed when, when patients do fly across Europe, for example, to, to visit me, um, that we can't offer uh, a better service um, to them more um, locally. Um, she's certainly willing to try anything. And, and in her case, it's really good that she was warned that cyclosporine can take six months to work. I think that um, managing of expectations is just so important with our patients. And it is all about that co-management error. An investigator with us, a really important part of the investigation because without their cooperation and, and their insight into their disease, um, we, we um, will struggle to find that um, opportune uh, treatment for them. Uh, Again, in this case, I think that the first ophthalmologist has been very honest and to admit that it's come to the end of of what he can offer um, and has forward referred. And I think that that's uh, really important. Um, And I love the fact that she felt that compassion from the second ophthalmologist. Um, I feel that there's a lot of psychology involved in managing dry eye disease because patients have been through um, such a journey and that's almost as important as the the physical treatment um, that we give them. So that keeping the the patient informed 
And of course, in this case, as it turned out, there were, there were lots of comorbidities that needed to be dug out, a really long uh, appointment to do that, but what a difference it made to the patient. Oh, that's great. I totally agree with you. There's so much anxiety that some of our dry patients develop, and it's, it's really important to recognize it and address it with compassion and care uh, in order to, so we have a shorthand way of saying it here, to treat the disease, put the mind at ease. And that just means addressing those fear components and letting them know that you're, you're in it for the long haul with them as a dry specialist. Absolutely. Jose, how often do you see sleep apnea as a comorbidity for dry eye? Um, I see not that often, but uh, sometimes uh, you need to ask that. And this is a comorbidity that can happen in, uh, in dry eye patients. But she's so young, right? I mean, that's, that's unusual to, when you're doing that exam and you see that excessive lid laxity and the papillary conjunctivitis under the lid and, you know, that lacrimal gland sort of coming forward and the lash ptosis. I mean, when I see that triad, I'm thinking, oh boy, this is sleep apnea until proven otherwise, right? But it's unusual to see it in someone so young. Yeah, exactly. And we, we never, we always need to uh, remember uh, to examine the leads, the eyelids, the flexibility. That, that's exactly what you said. It's so important, especially in this patient, because uh, she had uh, superior limbic um, keratoconjunctivitis as well. Of course, you need to. Uh, remind about the Jogren's, but of course, sleep apnea and the problems with the lead and these patients get uh, a lot of trauma during the night, during the sleep time. And we need to remember uh, this uh, differential. I, I think that's, that's exactly right. And SLK becomes uh, an interesting, you know, friction syndrome for these patients. And um, just that it, it feels like sandpaper is what the patients will tell tell you. And it looks like sandpaper between the yeah. barrier conge and the back of the upper lid. It looks like it. I want to talk for a moment just the importance of a good examination and using your vital dye stains like glistening green to look for that suspicious Sjogren's pattern in the interpalpebral conjunctiva, the superior limbic component. Um, the importance of vital dyes and really pushing and pulling on all the lids. I want to speak to that for just a moment. Yeah, I think dyes are an absolute essential part of, of what we do. As you say, lysamine green is just so important to really understand the, the conjunctiva. And as the practitioners, we need to really watch out because not all lysamine greens are, are very good at staining. Um, so it's important to get one that really works. Um, so you can very clearly see that marked line, but you can also see the lid wiper and um, that conjunctival stain. And as you say, that there's some quite diagnostic features of, of how that staining pattern uh, appears, which gives you again, another clue as a clinician uh, as to what you might be needing to, to investigate further. Excellent. So just uh, taking the time to listen, taking the time to look, have some compassion for these patients, I think goes a long way and think. And think deeper, right? What, what's, what's really going on with this, with this wonderful person? Yeah, and I think this is a good example that it takes time, that, that last consultation of the patient, five hours, that, that's, that's a very long time. 
Um, but but it does take take a good amount of time to do this. This is not something you can do quickly in practice attached to, to some other consultation. This will, will take some time and, and quite often a few appointments to actually unpack fully with a, a patient and, and to try a few things, see what works, see what doesn't. Uh, and that can help in that sort of investigative procedure. Love it. I really want to thank Drs. Gomez and Wilson for coming on the show today. And I want to thank the listeners for joining us too on this three episode journey. If you only listened to this episode so far, I advise you to go back and get some bit more bang for your buck by listening to the prior episodes that appear earlier in your podcast feed. For now, my name is Laura Perryman in Seattle, Washington. Appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for listening. <laughs>